Buried.fyi, a project designed to capture stories of personal experiences and life lessons for the young and impressionable. Your hosts are Matthew Berry, Amy Berry Smith, and Jessica Berry Woodward. Join us in a series of interesting interviews of family members and friends. We hope you'll enjoy learning a few things about the Berry family. Today's episode is going to cover adventures in computing. This is Matt in Houston with Bob in Moon Township. This is a tangent from an episode we did earlier on Westinghouse and commercial nuclear power. And it's covering some questions I wanted to ask at the time, but I thought would be more interesting in an episode of their own. But I'm going to start in an odd place and ask you about your experience with slide rules. I understand you were a slide rule wizard. And Sandy tells me you used to teach slide rule. Yeah, I probably I probably did somewhere along the line. Uh, I had, uh, in high school, I bought uh, a K&E log log uh, Versatrix something or else uh, standard double E slide rule from a guy who was a double E student at Iowa State that I worked with in, in Boone. Uh, and I had that for years and years and years. I may still have it someplace. It was all the case was a sort of a heavy cardboard black case that you hung on your belt. Uh, classic uh, uh, nerd, I guess, configuration, but that's what one did in those days. Uh, the the Sandy connection uh, is uh, interesting in the fact Sandy would have been valedictorian of her high school class, except for the fact that she got a B in trigonometry. The reason she got a B in trigonometry was that uh, she was the only girl in the class, all boys otherwise. The boys all had slide rules. She did not. So she was working the problems with pencil and paper and uh, handbooks. And the others had slide rules, so that cost her a letter grade, she thinks. Why wouldn't and she have a slide rule? Was that a, a gender thing, a sex thing, or a not an affordability thing? Well, I really don't know. Uh, we were, uh, let's see, were we, yeah, we were, she was a, a senior, so uh, uh, we were, where was I? I was probably a sophomore in college. I would have, if, if that had ever come up, I would have gotten one for her. So I don't know whether it was a... Uh, uh, slide rule phobia, or uh, who knows? But uh, that's that was her story, and she stuck to it. Hmm. When I was in uh, in college in senior year, taking linear control theory, everybody, along with the textbook, got a spy rule. Have you ever seen a spy rule? First time I saw one was when you sent me the link yesterday. That was a oh. crazy looking contraption. Well, yeah, it's a it's a round protractor with an arm on it and then a, a spiral curve of certain sort. What the idea was, you could place that on a, a plot in the real plane of poles and zeros, which is what one does in control theory. Yeah. And you can move this thing around, do this and that, and the other thing with the arm, and find the solution points. Otherwise, you'd have to solve uh, a polynomial for its roots uh, several million times. So it was actually a cute gadget, and they were used for years. That was the standard method hmm. until uh, digital computers caught up with that, with that art. And still, then I had, still may be faster than using a, typing some of those things into your computer. 
I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, when um, I later on, and a good number of years later, I probably was a manager, but I wanted a picket slide rule, the six-inch yellow metal things yeah. you carried in your shirt pocket. Uh, and I think I gave a hint to Sandy, and she got me one for her birthday or something. So I had that. I still have that. I have it on my desk. Um, the, the the last time I saw a collection of those, I was in business school at Harvard, 1974, and in the bookstore, they had a remainder's bin, hmm. which little literally a barrel, and they had a barrel of picket pocket slide rules <laughs> for sale for $3 or something. Uh, so they were no longer a luxury item by 1974. When I was first working as an engineer for Westinghouse doing nuclear engineering, so uh, nuclear physics involved uh, logarithms and exponentials, we had 20-inch slide rules, uh, mm -hmm. double-length slide rules, so that you could read an extra digit by interpolating. And we used those until desk calculators could uh, could do logarithms, which was the middle of the 60s. The Dr. Wang of Wang Computers, mm -hmm. his, his first product was a desk calculator that could do logarithms. It was a hot product. A 20-inch slide rule is not, uh, not a light device. I was, don't suppose that was easy to carry around. No, uh, no, no, you couldn't carry them around. <laughs> Nobody had that pocket. Uh, but uh, they were, I mean, we used them. Now, my buddy Mark Friedman, who's the father of the Fitbit inventor, uh, he found one a classroom slide rule, which was about uh, six feet long, the kind you hang on the wall. Mm -hmm. And he, he had that in his office for years and years and years. He enjoyed that. Uh, when I was a freshman, well, I wasn't a freshman, but there was a freshman required course when I went to Iowa State. A one-hour course, slide rule laboratory, and all engineering students took a laboratory, and we sat there and calculated problems like mad. And you had to the what they really were teaching was how to interpolate. What was an allowed interpolation? Interpolate interpretation interpolation, which had to be in tenths. So you could not do a third or something. You had to be a, by God tenth of a hmm. of a space, and that was the drill. So did you get through Iowa State with a slide rule, or did you eventually use computers along the way? Oh, well, uh, no, it was a slide rule world. Um, when I went to, um, when I was about ninth grade, I had heard of binary numbers. So I asked people, and nobody knew anything, so I found a book or something and looked in the book or a couple of books, and and it said, well, you count to base two, and it's zero, one, zero. And I thought, well, okay, but why would you want to do that? What was the point of all this? And I never did figure that out, maybe until much later. And it finally occurred to me. When, when I was at Iowa State as a student, I took a graduate course as a senior, a graduate-level course in computers. It was all chalk on the blackboard because we had no computers. Hmm. Uh, which isn't quite right. They had all kinds of analog computers. In fact, Iowa State had a huge center for network simulation for electric grids. So electric utilities from all over the country, all mm -hmm. over the world, would come to Iowa State and set up their grid on this big, huge analog computer, and it would run through various fault scenarios. Uh, so we had that. And they were building an ILLIAC-4 digital computer, 
which uh, I don't, which this had a, a memory of 1,000 words and was a big deal. Now, the uh, quaintness about that I can perhaps convey this was a hexadecimal computer. Now, we think a hexadecimal is zero through nine and then A, B, C, D, E, F to represent 16 values. Mm -hmm. Well, this was, an, this was a university computer. So it was zero through nine and then the, the electron orbits of a hydrogen atom, which are S, P, D, J, K, L. That was our base 16. And it's a little harder to remember. <laughs> I think so. It didn't really catch on. <laughs> Dustbin of history. So what became your first digital computer? Well, when I went to Westinghouse, they had a 704 available, an IBM 704. Oh, and I should go back to the Iowa State. Iowa State Business Center had an IBM 650, which is one maybe the first real business computer. And it was a drum. Everything was done on the drum. And uh, that's quaint now. But Link simulators, aircraft simulators, where 20, 25 years later, we're still using drums because it gave a, a, a fixed time base to the simulation. Uh, they at one time were selling simulators for nuclear power plants that used a drum. So that sounds odd, but uh, there it is. So the the IBM, when jumping back to um, Westinghouse, we had 704, then had 7090, and then 7094, and so on. Those were very limited computers. They were the best available, but they were very limited. About the size of a room or a whole floor of a building? How big were they? Uh, a big room, and they were hot. The the room was mostly given over to tape drives. The computer itself was, oh, I don't know, the kitchen size maybe. But they got smaller. The, the computers got smaller and the disk drives, I don't think, ever did. But, of course, they went into the dustbin of history too. But those computers were uh, were bare iron. When you If you wanted to operate it, you, hit, you went to the uh, control panel in front of the thing had 36 keys, and you flip the keys yourself, and that was a specific instruction to the computer, like clear and load tape. It was 01 something or else. And, and you had hands-on control in a, uh, as if you were driving a Model T. And there was no operating system. You could load, and that was it. You're, you're, whatever you loaded was what the computer did. That form factor lasted a long time until sort of time-sharing systems came along with operating systems on them. Is that right? That's right. The first idea, well, th these were uh, dedicated in the sense that they ran one program at a time. There was no sharing. The idea of sharing a computer came with the mini computers and DEC in particular, the idea that you'd have a whole bunch of people on terminals uh, doing something. And when you think about it, that's very inefficient. Uh, but on the other hand, that's sometimes what you want. So uh, that, of course, became the normal. But that was much, much later. The important limiting uh, factor in using early computers, and I mean the IBM family and then the uh, CDC 6600s, which were the, the engineering computer for a while, and then the Cray computers, was they were all memory limited. If you wanted to do an engineering calculation, you had to figure out some way to get 
an awful lot of the calculation inside the the available RAM, which was quite small. The uh, we had, I remember the 7090s were 32k k words, so that's 0. 0.0002 megabytes of, uh, of fast storage. You had to figure out some way to do your calculations inside that. And this and, was before uh, that, before paging systems came along to take care of that for you. Yes, it's now uh, you, you don't even think about it. You just sit down and type, and then somebody else, uh, Bill Gates or somebody, figures out where the how to copy things in and out of uh, of the fast storage. Now the Cray computers could swap, but that was a, a primitive form of what you're talking about, and that was much later. The Cray computers had a little bit of, of a handful of registers of very fast access. Uh, what we would call on-chip memory now, uh, and then uh, RAM, and then some backup disk storage, I guess. And those were computers that were uh, in liquid nitrogen. So it wasn't that people were cheap. It just That was all people knew how to do. So when did operating systems come along? With the IBM 360, which was... Uh, uh, I don't know, end of the, end of the 60s, 1970s, somewhere along in there, uh, loosely speaking. And, and even and people were very mad about that. We engineers were very mad about that because the operating system took up practically the whole computer. So the the performance improvement was was zip. The, uh, the, maybe the human factors, it's sort of like DOS versus Windows. DOS is a lot more efficient. But after a while, you just say, I don't care about that anymore. I, I don't want to bother with typing stuff into DOS. I'll go with the Windows. So the program, for instance, that you told us about with your doctoral dissertation, was that the sort of thing that ran on these large mainframe computers? And was that an offline or online application? Well, these were a dedicated use, so you'd seize the computer and it would run for a period of time. It was not unusual in those days to have, a, have a one calculation run 20 hours, which uh, you couldn't do for all calculations all the time because you simply didn't have enough computers. But that was not, uh, not out of the question. Uh, a, a calculation that ran an hour wasn't unusual, it was more common, and one that ran several minutes was indeed very common. So there was a continual battle to get more computing capacity. And then when, uh, to go back to the operating thing, when, when IBM comes along and says, well, this is a really great operating system, we're going to cut your throughput in half, uh, that was not well received by the engineering community. We were perfectly happy with, uh, sort of like hot rods, we'd perfectly happy to put our own fenders on, just get out of the room, let me have the fenders. Did those control applications have to worry about hard deadlines and handling sensor input and interrupts and things like that? They were very bad at that. They were terrible. Uh, they had none of those things actually happened on those engineering kinds of computers. The idea of having sensor interrupt was uh, foreign to the whole thing. So, But there are other computers that did that, but not the kind we're talking about. The fact that many computers sort of had to do that because they had to have some kind of an interrupt to know when to swap between users. Uh, but uh, even, for instance, the uh, you remember the Apollo 
uh, uh, many computers. The Apollo did not have an interrupt. It, it did a lot of scanning. It would it would look inside, but it didn't, did not have an interrupt in the in the hardware sense. So if if you move the mouse, the computer didn't know it until it did it did a next scan to see where the mouse was. You had a mouse that was much later. <laughs> that was much later, but uh, yes, there was no mouse on the. Uh, in uh, 1981 or so, um, the Westinghouse had we had this huge operation in Monroeville, and we'd spilled outside the building again. We occupied 16 buildings in that area at one time. Couldn't keep up with the floor space, and so they moved a bunch of us to the uh, to rented space at Monroeville Mall. And uh, I was bus captain for the move since I had more spare time than anybody. Uh, so I said, okay, well, why don't we have a paperless office? And people ran forward, IBM, Dick, others ran forward, said, yes, we'll build your paper office. Well, that lasted about one meeting and they collapsed entirely. They simply weren't prepared to do any kind of desktop uh, office work. I mean, the word processors sort of existed and time-sharing sort of existed, but in terms of putting an office on your desk in the modern sense was simply beyond the state of the art at that time. So we had lots of paper. Beyond the uh, twiddling the dip switches on the front panel, there must have been at some point where you started writing programs on Hollerith cards and yes. running them through card readers. Did you program that way too? Oh, yes. Well, that was the way actual programming was done. The, the idea that you could stand at the, at the key panel and key things in, I always thought was quaint even then. Um, most of the stuff we did was on, on uh, punch cards. So we had card punches, key punches, 025 and 029. And we had uh, red sticky tape to put over a hole that was punched in the wrong place. And uh, which, of course, lasted about three trips to the card reader, and then you'd lose that, and then you'd have error, and uh, it's a big mess. Uh, but uh, oh, that reminds me of one thing I wanted to say about the 650. Uh, we were talking about hexadecimal, and of course, we think binary. The 650 was biquinary. Biquinary is like an abacus. You have two beads on every, in every column. You have two up here and five down there, biquinary. Well, and the, six, the reason that was done is that there are always two of, out of seven which are up. So two ones out of seven, no matter what the, what the representation, what you're representing, it's always two out of seven. So it's an easy circuit to check. And checking was, of course, important in the early days when errors were very common of all kinds, electronic errors, everything. Uh, so that they had to, uh, they went that way. They used the oldest known calculating slide rule, the, uh, the abacus. The biquinary sort of went into the dustbin of history. I don't know of any computer afterwards that used that. But we did other checking, of course, with uh, checksums and cyclical error and whatnot these days. But that was much later. Did you have a clerk run your card decks to the card reader for you? Uh, at, in the early days, uh, before the big building was built in Monroeville, the computers were in East Pittsburgh, which is a huge factory that ran for miles in the Turtle Creek Valley. And we were then located at the old research center, which was on sort of a hill 
in uh, Forest Hills, about two or three miles away. So we had uh, the equivalent of mail boys driving back and forth three or four times a day to uh, to carry big boxes of cards and bring back big loads of uh, of printer paper, which is called in those days it was called banana folded. This was just folded back and forth. So big continuous stream of uh, paper, but flattened in a banana fold. One of my dreadful memories of college is running a big card deck through the card reader and then going to the gym for a workout and coming back to the computer center to see a two page output in my bin instead of the expected 200 page output. And it usually uh-huh. usually said JCL error on it or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, we used to draw on the side of the stack some elaborate pattern so that we could tell whether the cards were out of order or not. That's a good idea. So, did you have some way to do that too? Because order mattered a lot. <laughs> yeah, order mattered a lot. I don't remember how we coped with that. Uh, numbering the cards really didn't work because we kept changing things in the middle, of course. So uh, I don't know. They would get a new, get a fresh punch once in a while. I had a uh, sequence of about 60 JCL cards that worked once, and that became my Atom program. So I just kept those 60 cards and ran them for every program I ever ran later because they worked right. I didn't want to perturb it. Yes, there's much to be said for that. At one time, um, I w- when I was an assistant engineering manager, some group that reported to me was I've forgotten what they're doing, but we had a key punch, not exactly in our division, but somewhere over there in the building, we had a key punch pool. So people punch cards. Uh, the, the reason I bring this up is we were having a lot of computer errors that turned out to be key punch errors. Cards were The cards were punched twice in those days. So you'd punch them on an 025, take the deck over here, and somebody else would key the same stuff and it would verify that the holes were in the right place. It was an 029. And, and then the, the verifier would put a notch at the end of the card. So that would say it's a verified card. Well, we were having errors, and, and we couldn't figure out why. So finally we had a, a secret shopper go look. And it turns out that uh, what was going on was that the people working at the third shift in the key punch room were a bit lazy, so they pre-verified the cards. So they would take blank cards and run them through, and uh, the verifier would say, okay, that card's blank, notch. So they had a whole bunch of pre-verified cards. That way they only have to key punch them once. they take the, the notched cards and then key punch into that, which, of course, meant there was no error checking, which, of course, meant big, we're wasting a lot of computer money. So uh, we fixed that, I think, by firing somebody, as I recall. But that was a big mystery for a while. So you punched those instructions in machine language, I assume. At what point did uh, higher level languages enter the picture with compilers and assemblers and things like that? Well, when I came along, we had access to, uh, so let's just say 1960, 61. We had access to Fortran, uh, and a lot of programming was done in Fortran. Fortran was okay, except it wasn't very efficient. So if you were worried about execution time, then uh, that part, those subroutines were done over in 
what I would call machine language, which was called FAP at that time, something assembly program. But you wrote, in, at that level, you wrote, it was symbolic in the sense that you could name something in storage, give it a symbolic name, and then it would, the computer would later assign a physical address to that, sort of like Fortran does. They're relocatable. Uh, but you wrote in specific instructions, clear multiplier, clear and add, uh, addressed index, index plus one. So very, very primitive level. But of course, it was very efficient. If you looked at what the what Fortran generated, in those days, the Fortran would generate, in fact, this language, you could look at it, uh, and you could see how terribly inefficient it was. It was putting all kinds of stuff in that you didn't need and was taking up time. So... Uh, we had both Fortran and uh, this assembler line, FAP. So I did a lot of that. This was all self-taught. I mean, I suppose there were computer schools someplace, but this was all on-the-job training, inventing as we went along. And we write our own macros, for instance. So uh, you write your own subroutines. You write everything yourself. Now, there was a certain amount of sharing available uh, on in fact, I think it was a system called Share, sort of like you can, now on the Internet. You can find people will just post their solution to various problems. You can use that or you can pay a small fee. Uh, but uh, in those days, that was there was all kinds of attempts to share programming, but the shared programs either didn't work or they weren't quite what you wanted and so on. So you wound up doing your own. Uh, and that was uh, a lot of work. Uh, Shakespeare wrote about one page of play of theater a day. It took him a mandate to write a page. As near as I can tell, it still takes a mandate to write a page of computer programming. It's something like one man hour per finished line of uh, programming. I don't think that's improved. Now, you can do more with a line than writing. You, if you can write a higher level language, your line is worth more. But uh, it's still a number like that. It's still a very painful business. No one's, no one says, has improved it in 400 years. I think that sharing hasn't improved that either because you spend that time trying to understand what the other person did and whether you can trust it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I've been looking recently at code that's available on the Internet in this shared sense to uh, read out the uh, – information from uh, from a, a photo file, EXIF stuff, uh, because I want to apply that in a, in a uh, photo manager I'm fiddling around with. And uh, it's very difficult. This is a, a crazy uh, storage system. Uh, but if you look at somebody else's code, the first thing you see is all the things he did wrong, <laughs> literally errors. And then you see when you're all through, you still don't quite understand how it works. So that's uh, perhaps a way of learning, studying somebody else's um, work, the way someone can study Shakespeare. Uh, but you can study Shakespeare all day long and you still can't write Shakespeare. <laughs> Sometimes it's to your advantage to do it the hard way, do it yourself, make all the mistakes. Uh, yeah, I've done, don't make them again. Uh, well, one or at least not very often, or not right away. Well, I I, I have to say it that I've self-taught myself all the way through computing, starting with the fact there weren't any when I started. But uh, uh, w what, later on, when I was uh, writing 
the real production code that we used in nuclear engineering, the management finally got smart and worried about the fact that if I got run over by a truck, n- nobody would know how this stuff worked. So they assigned another squad of people to redo and manage, or they say now curate uh, my work, my computer codes. And the first thing they did was c- come to me and said, would I rewrite them please in Fortran because <laughs> they did not know assembler. So these are our professional programmers who didn't know uh, the uh, efficient computer languages. Uh, now, like you needed to curate your curators then. Uh, well, yeah, but what are you going to do? Uh, I, the miracle, if you think back at it, the miracle is that the, the whole system worked at all. I'll have to write a book on how that could not possibly have worked, like uh, why a butterfly can't fly or why a hummingbird can't fly. I can do the same thing about Westinghouse civilian nuclear power. That can't possibly fly, but of course it did. It revolutionized the whole entire world. Were digital computers the only choice for deploying that code, or was it even conceivable that you could do some of those things in hardware and in uh, conventional sort of analog read switch type hardware? Well, not not uh, really. We had uh, we did plant simulation. Uh, we had a simulator which was analog and then later hybrid. We had a, a kind of a deck mini computer running the analog. Uh, but uh, we we did analog computers for plant simulation, plant transients, for pl- operator training, uh, event simulation. That was done in analog for. Gee, a very long time. Eventually, it was all done in, in digital, but that was many years later. But in terms of actually building a simulator or a special purpose circuit or something, we didn't do that. Maybe we should have. Nowadays, it's sort of a migration path. You do the control system on a general purpose computer and then decide whether to burn it in a chip somehow and make it uh, immutable. Well, there's there's a lot of merit in that, yes. When did networks turn up in that environment? You mentioned uh, business desktop applications. Were there uh, networks the whole time, or was that a, a novelty when they arrived? Well, we eventually had uh, slave computers of a, a low level uh, at remote sites just to reduce the, the uh, bus traffic back and forth. Well, they tended to be mostly printer controllers. So you could you have a card reader and a printer and some minimal computer at a remote site, and that fed things back and forth over a leased T1 telephone line. And then eventually we had uh, deck kind of computers, mini computers, and they were used for, um, I would say, uh, preparation. You'd, you'd do a little setup of a big job on a, on a local computer maybe an interactive deck, timeshare thing, and then you'd prepare that and hand that off to a big computer for a Cray to do the actual analysis. But the idea of eventually coming to a shared system in the modern sense, that's very late. I mean, the the Internet, as we know it, does not go back. Well, when did Andreessen write his work? Around the year 1995 or 2000 or something. It's very recent. We had uh, email, but that was dial-up. I had one of the first uh, PCs, IBM PC, in Westinghouse. 
and I talked Jim Moore into buying it for me and letting me take it home because uh, I, I didn't have any time during the day. And I wanted to uh, learn about that. So he said, okay. And he let that happen. And, and that cost $5,000. This was a uh, one floppy disk, uh, whatever they were in those 80, days. 86. Yeah, or, or, or even less. lower, whatever. <laughs> Whatever would blow that, that's what this was. And it was only useful, in fact, for, uh, I think it probably had a word processor, but it was only really used for email. So Westinghouse was an early email user. When we were in Europe, we had email back and forth to, uh, to headquarters. Uh, that was very big. Westinghouse was one of the first, uh, well, I know the only first, was one of the early adapters of email in the business sense. And even then, uh, the, one of the, well, the reason Jim Moore let me get a PC and take it home was one of the problems was that the senior managers, even the ones with PhDs, uh, were of, let's say, 50 years old. They had no notion of computing at all. So they would have email, but they would have their secretaries print out the email for the morning. They'd read it on paper, mark it up, hand it back, and then hours later, the uh, secretary would type the responses back in. So that was a very primitive level of uh, uh, management interaction. What was your first email address? Do you remember? Boy, that's a question. I, th uh, I Bob, don't know. Bob at Westinghouse? <laughs> yeah, B at Westinghouse. Uh, my my buddy, Cliff Brubaker, who's a dean at, not retired, but dean at uh, Pitt, his email was cliff at pitt.edu. I thought that was ostentatious. <laughs> Mine was uh, MRB at rice.bitnet. So Bitnet. Even preceding uh, today's internet. Yeah, you no, know, when I think about it, we had, uh, well, we had dial up. So we would dial up, and, and somehow the computer, the email computer knew it was me, so I must have had an ID of some kind and a password, I suppose, but I have no idea what they were. I think my first exposure to a computer was a, uh, a remote terminal or teletype of some sort that you brought home in Brussels with an acoustic coupler on it. And we could dial <laughs> up the uh, thing and I could, you showed me six or eight commands I could do, which amounted to listing files and logging off. Um, <laughs> That was kind of fun. Yeah, I remember that. I uh, remember, and those things uh, weighed about, I don't know, 30 pounds. They were a suitcase size. In those days, uh, the telephone company had designed, the, I think the data rate was 192 bits per second or something like that, which was 10 times as fast as anybody could type. And therefore, they thought that was plenty of uh, data rate. And when modems, uh, who made the modems that came along, there were 16K. That was amazing that they could go that fast. We used to hardwire them and, or move cards around inside the modems to, uh, to get that really fast speed. And, of course, the appetite's infinite. So no matter how fast it is, it ain't fast enough. I remember the computer center at Rice in 1980 or 81 had a lot of uh, terminals that were modemed to the mainframe somehow, and people wanted to use those because they could type virtual cards onto a terminal through the VT100. 
interface, but I found those slow. So I was the, the lone guy over in the other room with the deck writer, which was a paper terminal. And I love that because I could just pile the paper on the floor and go back and read what I did and see the results. And it was much faster because it wasn't uh, limited by the modem speed. So I, I got uh, exclusive use to those machines because I was the only one that knew how to use them and wanted to use them. When Amy was in uh, in college, uh, I encouraged her to take a some kind of computer course, whatever was available to nurses. And what would have been a really good course for her would have been a course in how to use a word processor and here's a spreadsheet and here's PowerPoint. But she didn't take that. I'm not even sure that was available, but she didn't take that. She took a, a programming course. And I think, not even sure it was Fortran, but something like that. And she would uh, she lived at Pitt and she had a roommate also from Monroeville, but uh, uh, living with in one of the dormitories at Pitt. And the Amy and the roommate would come back to Monroeville to use my dial-up PC to do their homework because their instructor was Chinese, spoke no English at all. They had no idea what the course was about. It was an absolute uh, disaster for them. And uh, the wonder of it all was that Amy graduated summa cum laude anyway. <laughs> but I wasn't much help to them in that course. I would have been no help to her at all in uh, organic chemistry or physiology or whatever they did. What sorts of programming tools were available to you? Did you have uh, little side programs to help you write machine language or check memory layouts and things like that? Not much. Uh, those things came much, much later. This was We were in primitive a primitive world that you have to write your own compilers or uh, assemblers disassemblers loaders yeah, we had the there were compilers the, the if you wrote machine language it went to a compiler if you wrote fortran it went to a compiler so they were compiled code uh, the decompilers and trans uh, when fortran 2 became fortran 4 ibm issued a whole bunch of into they were incompatible naturally being IBM. So IBM issued all kinds of code uh, programs to convert your Fortran 2 to Fortran 4, which didn't work very well. But anyway, they did a lot of that. But uh, that kind of help didn't really exist. There wasn't much in the way of diagnostics. You could get a, a tape dump and look at the instructions one at a time and try to figure things out. But boy, that was, that was slow going. Still did it once in a while, but if you had a real bug, you couldn't figure out what was wrong. That was one way to do it. Did you tend to use the same computer for all tasks, or did you have different computers for different jobs? No, there was one computer. In the nineteen sixty, I when I would when got a college and went to Westinghouse work. I did uh, the previous summer. I'd worked in the nuclear group, but I was hired by the corporation. I looked around different parts of the corporation. So I wound up working in Baltimore for about a month. And in Baltimore, there was one computer. It did engineering calculations, and everybody screamed about the poor service. On Wednesday afternoons, it did the payroll. Nobody complained on Wednesday afternoons. <laughs> if it took them all day to do the payroll, that's okay. So it was really shared. Uh, 
so they were shared in that sense. But uh, we didn't really have a lot of computers until much later. And then we had uh, numbers of Cray computers. So that was big when the business got much bigger. But we always had all we could buy. Uh, it was never a, never a penny pinching when it came to buying computers. Just to put a, a time scale on thing or a time stamp on thing, uh, you, you got through college with a slide rule. I got through college with a HP 41 CV handheld calculator. Yeah. And lots of mainframe time. And I got pretty good with that calculator. It was uh, reverse Polish notation, which I liked a lot. Yep. Um, I had all the little memory modules and a little magnetic card reader and a little printer and an instrumentation interface. And so I put all my finite difference, finite element programs on there. I'd write the mechanical engineering labs up ahead of time. And I'd walk in the lab and hook up the sensors to the wave tank or the ramjet or the wind tunnel or whatever we were doing. And then I'd press start on the desktop calculator stand back and watch it collect data and press stop now out would come the report with all the data reduction already done and i'd turn it in on the way out of the lab uh, when everybody else was scrambling to collect their scraps of paper and work out what to do and i so i thought it was a piece of cake and then one day alan chapman the gas dynamics and heat transfer prof called me into his office and said barry what the hell is this it was my printout from mm. the uh, several labs, and he realized that he had to make the labs a little more difficult for those of us that could use the computers. <laughs> so that led to a. It's actually good for me. It led to special topics classes with him in particular that I got credit for, uh, which was led to some ideas about using. AI artificial intelligence reasoning techniques, and that I wrote in Lisp to solve uh, problems at the end of Dr. Chapman's gas dynamics book. Uh, every, every chapter had gas dynamics problems, and so my solver could solve all of those uh, problems on its own. And that led to, eventually led to my own doctorate dissertation. So all, all due to that HP 41 calculator, which I still well, use. Uh, <laughs> you I had one of those at one time, uh, not not a good one, but one of the first uh, HP family of small computers like that. Um, and I think it cost $500, and it could maybe multiply and divide. I think that was about all. I hope I didn't pay for it myself. I think you had one of the first digital calculator watches, too. Is that right? Yeah, I did. That do add, Sending, add and subtract and multiply. Did it do anything else? I remember it had a minuscule display on it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, that uh, I had mentioned that, and we were living in Europe, and uh, Sandy got the idea for that as a Christmas present. I'm pretty sure, and so she calculated. She contacted my old buddy Chuck Hope in uh, Pittsburgh, back at the home office. And he went out and bought one and shipped it to her and so on. So, uh, yeah, that was a gift. I did have that, and I, I enjoyed having that. Uh, the watch I have now, I can talk to, so I suppose it can do uh, arithmetic. I, I haven't tried that. You mentioned Lisp. Lisp was written in 1956. It's older than Fortran. 
and I had never I never heard of it until I don't know uh, 1985 or something like that. It's still in use today. Yeah. Well, uh, once I became aware of it, when I got into the artificial intelligence business, Carnegie Mellon was uh, pushing Lisp and ran a course for us. And um, being a contrarian, I said, okay, they're doing Lisp. I'm going to do something else. What's available? And Prolog existed. I guess it still exists. And uh, I was much more interested in Prolog than Lisp, mainly because I'm that kind of guy. I still use uh, Prolog and its siblings today. Amazing. After our discussion about your uh, dissertation and, and your uh, diffusion methods, you described to me an integral method that sounded to me like an early form of finite element method algorithms. So what were, what were some of your favorite algorithms uh, <laughs> implemented uh, real-world programs? Trapezoidal rule. That easy. What, well, uh, one of the things that I did was that uh, I mentioned that because we had some program that did a that was a, sort of a subroutine. It was just repeated thousands of times in a real calculation, and it was doing a five-point rungakata integration to get the average value over some something, and it took a long time. I said, "Well, gee, that's pretty." sophisticated considering we don't know the data within 1%. Why are we doing this five-point rungakata? So I took that out and put in trapezoidal rule. Ran a lot faster and got the same answer. <laughs> but the uh, most of the stuff, uh, take this and get back control theory. What, mostly what I want to do is smooth things out rather than, so if you, if you calculate in a sort of a traditional chalk on the blackboard set, you, you wind up doing high-pass differential things, uh, like Newton. Calculate, multiply uh, the slope by x and or delta x and get the new value. That's high-pass, which is noisy, unstable. It's a predictor, and I didn't want that. I wanted smooth, so I always went the other way, which is uh, low-pass, and the simplest low-pass filter is trapezoidal rule. And uh, that's if, if you if you say a trapezoidal rule is taking uh, some weight on one point and some weight on the other point, and the sum of the two weights is unity, then if you if you lean entirely forward, you're doing high pass. If you lean entirely backward, you're doing low pass. And trapezoidal rules, in fact, half and half. So there's there's much to be said for a trapezoidal rule. Besides, it's simple. You don't have to keep track of. 15 different parameters. So I believed in integrating over time, integrating over space, and low pass. Keep, keep things low. And it worked fine. Besides, the, the average value from a, let's say you have a little mesh with four corners. If you calculate the corner values and then look for the maximum, the highest corner value is going to be higher than the average of the four. So if you're calculating the average of the four to start with, you get a lower peak. We were always looking for a lower peak. So uh, since we're calculating maximum values, maximum allowed values. So by doing it that way, you automatically got a better answer. And I like that. 
Now, that may sound like a small print. They made a difference of 10% in the allowed power rating of, of billion-dollar power plants. We got 10% more power out of the same plant doing it my way. And that's some of that margin you were allowed to uh, accommodate customers with. Yeah, which nobody understood but me. And I loved it. <laughs> I'll throw in my own because it's uh, not too different from that, It's a, but it's a wildly idiosyncratic situation. So I solved a problem that everybody had done the hard way. I used, to, I used an optimal control solution to solve a center of mass problem on the space shuttle. Uh, so this situation only happens when you have a propellant leak in, from one of the propellant tanks. And you have to worry about the location of the center of mass after the deorbit burn so that the aircraft, when it becomes an aircraft, is still flyable. Uh, so the center of mass has to be within this box that's only a few inches wide and a few inches long. And somebody at Rockwell had come up with these ninth-order polynomials uh, where you plug in the propellant mass in each of the four tanks, and it will emit the center of mass. Uh, so we had to solve this beforehand, before you do the deorbit burn, and you have to compute a control point during the burn at which you... Uh, so you have to patch memory, computer memory, to move the valves in the right direction because otherwise they wouldn't allow you to feed uh, propellant from oxidizer from one side and fuel from the other. So we did a memory patch to do that. And then halfway through the burn or at some point during the burn, you put the switches back into uh, their uh, hardwired positions so that the remainder of the burn is done uh, what's called straight feed. So oxidizer and fuel from the same side. And so this, I used a sequential gradient restoration algorithm, uh, which I learned in class uh, to work out this control point. And that SGRA method nicely accommodated that problem. Uh, this guy named Angelo Miele, who worked out the original Apollo flight trajectories to go to the moon and back, these free return trajectories, uh, taught me those skills. He was kind of a fun guy. Uh, but I don't think that program was used outside of uh, catastrophe simulations we did for practice for spatial operations, but um, kind of a, a fun, my, my favorite solution, I guess. Mm. Nelly was fun because he'd walk into class with a, piece of chalk in his hand and just resume where he left off two or, <laughs> two or three days ago. Never missed a beat, never never used notes. It was wonderful. Let's see, I'm trying to think if I ever had a favorite professor like that. We had some that were amusing. Um, but I don't know that it, I ever had an inspiring uh, professor anywhere along the line. I probably did, but none, none ring a bell at the moment. And some I liked, of course, some I didn't like. Yep. So you're still doing programming and learning programming skills. What are you up to now? Well, much later in life, I uh, picked up, uh, I, I got into web programming with PHP and uh, 
uh, Ruby on Rails that you put me onto, and um, JavaScript, which I've I've come to appreciate quite a lot. It's really a very clever language, um, low level, pretty low level, and uh, things like that. What am I doing recently? Well, now I'm trying to figure out this, uh, how to read the uh, information out of uh, uh, photo files. Eventually, I'll figure that out. That's not impossible. I'll figure it out. What uh, Along the line, I did a lot of... Um, database programming for various reasons, so I had learned SQL. In fact, I, I don't know why I took an interest in databases a long time ago and thought about uh, third canonical form and things like that, but uh, didn't really do any programming until uh, in, in databases until in the last 20 years or something, or 15 years or 10 years. Time, time is a little blur. Um, what else have I learned? Hmm... I'll take you to the AI. I think at the end of your, near the end of your Westinghouse um, career, maybe 25 years ago, you were involved with some AI technology development for, for Westinghouse. And I sensed that that research field was lifeless for many years since then, but lately it's witnessing a renaissance, although it seems to me to be a, a rediscovery of prior work by the next generation. But from a computing standpoint, what were some of the AI efforts that you were involved with well, the thing that really worked for us in this little industrial group was machine learning. That is, uh, taking data, the big, huge piles of data, and finding patterns, and then uh, developing, in this case, control algorithms to operate uh, uh, uranium. This wasn't enriching. This was taking enriched uranium and putting it into pellets. Uh, so I come in the door in a big tub of paste, green paste, which was uranium hexafluoride. And at the end of it, it went out the door in little pellets uh, about the size of your one, one part of your finger uh, that were uranium oxide of a very high purity of oxidation, right number of, ox, of oxygen for uranium and the right density. Very, uh, and the, the, so the process wasn't, didn't look very hard on the blackboard, very hard to control. And we had this very large factory in Columbia, South Carolina that did it. There were five parallel uh, processing lines, so five lines, five little factories running this stuff. And we were trying to figure out why the performance was so erratic. Now, the plant was operated by the people who had developed the process. We had the best possible minds on it right there at the factory trying to get this to work better. It wasn't that it worked bad. I mean, it didn't. Uh, I mean that the the risk was you had to scrap a batch and do it over again. So we always had an inventory of rework that was annoying, uh, and and the the plant ran full. And we were looking at building another line on make the building bigger to keep up. Well, if you're scrapping 20 percent, then if you could get the scrap down to zero, you don't need that next line. You, you're simply making better use of what you got. So by using machine learning, and this was uh, using Prolog, and it was uh, uh, information-based analysis, and we were calling on the work done by uh, a consultant we eventually hired for a while in uh, Australia, whose name will come to me in a minute, uh, who had figured out a way to reduce 
information or find information content in a, a pile of data that uh, we we in his his equations weren't quite right but our little guys our guys a little bunch of guys figured out the right equations and uh, the result of that was we found a way to operate all the lines the lines were built identical in the same machinery so that we finally wound up with all of the personality effects taken out of it, all the lines had exactly the same settings, and they all went from a low yield of, say, 80% to a 99% plus yield simply by using information theory. So this took $50 million out of the inventory and avoided a $50 million capital charge to build another line. So this was a $100 million payoff. So we use this uh, machine learning Completely a just simple based information theory based reduction of data to find the set points and add a hundred million dollar payoff. That may have, in fact, I'm pretty sure it is the biggest payoff of any industrial AI application of that era hmm. and maybe ever since. And what people are talking about now for machine learning are of uh, cars that learn to drive themselves, which is a hot topic in the literature anyway, is uh, not very different from that. It's trying to learn from experience. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that's uh, that that I'm not sure that there's a basis for that. I mean, the bubble. I guess we'll find out in the next twenty years. Was that Ross Quinlan by any chance? Ross Quinlan. Yes, thank you for remembering that. I, have you met him in person? I've seen him speak at AI conferences. Yeah, and I've used his uh, ID three and C four point five algorithms for some uh, decision learning, decision tree learning. Yeah, his ID3 is where we started, and ID3 has uh, one point he sort of plugs in a fudge factor. So our guy Sam Kang rederived that and found the right thing, which was a couple ratio of logarithms or something, but uh, uh, made that slight correction, and that improved the tree, uh, the, the concentration of data in the right part of the tree anyway. So, but Ross Quinlan was a, was our guiding light there. Now, the president of CMU, when I first went in the AI business, the president of CMU invited me down. And uh, uh, we had lunch. Here, here am I being, being um, uh, courted by the head of, by the president of CMU. And he said, why aren't you giving us money to do your AI for you? And I said, well, it's very simple. If we give you money, you do work, and then you publish it. There are plenty of places we can go, including Ross Quinlan. We give them money, they do the work, and they don't publish it. We're a private company. We don't want to publish. And he said, grumble. So anyway, never I never gave CMU any money, although um, although maybe to teach a course or something, but no research grants. Other parts of Westinghouse did. But uh, I like the, the no-publish idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's um, maybe wrap up by revisiting this uh, machine learning topic and some profits that were related to early AI. So there's one Augusta Ada Bryan, or Byron, uh, born in 1815 as the daughter of the mad poet Lord Byron, uh, later became Countess Lovelace. And she had a circle of friends and tutors that was rather impressive uh, she was connected to Charles Dickens of the two cities, Sir Walter Scott, 
the playwright of Ivanhoe, Augustus de Morgan of de Morgan's Law, Michael Faraday of Faraday's Law, Charles Wheatstone of the Wheatstone Bridge, and a particular man named Andrew Cross, who was a scary electrical laboratory experimenter who is thought to have been the contemporary of Mary Shelley and the archetype for Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> so Ada has her own programming language now, the DOD-sponsored language Ada, and Mary Shelley has her now famous science fiction novel Frankenstein, which was written, Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, which was written uh, the year before Ada was born. Uh, Mary wrote that at age 19, uh, along with uh, The Last Man, featuring a plague that destroys all life on Earth. <laughs> um, so Frankenstein was about the tragic consequences of an obsessive search for an understanding of nature and Ada was heralded as the uh, first prophet of the computing age. And so what she later studied after working with Charles Babbage on the uh, difference engine and the analytical engine was um, a calculus of the nervous system, which was a model of uh, attempting to try to unite mathematics with human feelings. And this was thought to be an early glimpse into sentient computers and what some might call intelligence. And so jumping ahead, uh, we, we take these monsters who uh, struggled with the gift of life and identified their place in the world by learning the characters from Milton's Paradise Lost uh, and a Victor Frankenstein who's struggling with depression and reconciling his, his creations and his intentions. And now we have a stories this past summer of a flurry of machines that do learning about themselves or auto machine learning. Uh, they teach themselves to make better machines. So I'm going to unite this computer prophecy with the search for artificial intelligence. Do you, do you think AI is uh, potentially a monster, in, in, inescapable, as some like to portray it? And likely to rear its ugly head and wreak havoc? Or is it, is it some, uh, like, becoming an inhuman, self-aware monster that has to come to grips with itself and <laughs> finding itself adrift at the North Pole? Uh, I'll go back to the 40s when people uh, uh, were thinking about computers and the first few computers we used for World War II. And... Uh, uh, Johnny, what's his name? John von Neumann. And a few people were sitting around thinking about how many computers the world needed because they could see that, of course, computers were going to improve. And uh, they thought maybe five. Five computers would do it. They didn't, of course, they never thought about email, but they weren't interested in accounting or even slide rule work. They were thinking, what are the really big problems that are worth computing that for they said weather a nuclear atom and then a couple more so they thought that there were a few few really big problems that deserved a computer that would cost some enormous amount of money and so on but they they did not uh, that's laughed at because well of course now we have desktop computers and so on but they were only interested in really big problems 
And one of the people involved in those days was Freeman Dyson, uh, who's still alive. In fact, he's running around quite an old man now. But his son wrote a book about those days. And he pointed out in this book that the question of whether a computer would know everything has been solved because the computer, in the sense of Google, knows everything. If you had a question, it'll give you an answer. Uh, so to some approximation, that forecast of only 50 or 75 years ago has come to pass. Computers, in fact, do know everything. Uh, is that good or bad? There's now, a, as you know, a big political fight with uh, companies like Google about who actually has the data and what are they doing with it. And whether you can have an encryption system which is so private that even the government can't open it, is that good or bad? No one seems to know. Uh, so there are issues. There's another book, and I'll go back again, to this is the 60s, that I've read twice recently by Hannah Arendt, A-R-E-N-D-T, uh, who was a German philosopher in those days, and she wrote in German. You can, the English translations look like German. I mean, they were, a whole pair, one sentence is a whole page long and the verbs on the end. The uh, She pointed out that uh, while she was talking mostly about other things, she pointed out big science. To her, big science meant NASA, Manhattan Project, huge organizations doing science. And she said, once you start those things, you can't stop them. That It just goes. And it only goes in one direction. And no one's quite sure what that direction is because there's no rudder. So I think this comes very close to your question. Is uh, So we know how to shoot rockets at the moon and maybe at the stars. Uh, can we unlearn that? Uh, probably not. So Hannah Arendt was pointing out that big science – uh, just goes. You can't stop it. You can't turn it around. It's not under political control because even North Koreans can build rockets these days. And it's not under uh, any kind of uh, uh, popular control. People, generally speaking, don't want robots or they want somebody else to have a robot, but not, I don't want a robot, robot doing my job. I don't care if a robot does your job, but I don't want it doing my job. So uh, we're we're creating, I wouldn't say a monster, but I think we're we're advancing in a way that we have no idea what's going on. So that may or may not be responsive to your question, but you, that's what your question provoked to me. Yep. Uh, it leaves open that uh, determination, that finding, so that's good. Uh, what else have I forgot to ask? Well, we talked about biquinary, and we, <laughs> we talked about slide rules. Uh, you know, the specialized slide rule is still a good idea, or even a nomograph once in a while. But uh, I, th I think those things have all gone away. And you see now uh, with the next generation, I'm, well, you can observe it up close with your kids who are now in school, what they're doing with computing. I suspect you'll find the same thing that I guess each generation finds in the last hundred years, and that is that your kids will soon know more about computing than their teachers do and certainly more than their textbooks do, and they'll have a extremely boring time in school, which I suspect you did too. Mm -hmm. Already their learning programming skills uh, age 
I guess Robert started at age five learning these skills by playing certain games that require accomplishments along the way, but disguised in those accomplishments are skills related to computer science, like the development of queues or stacks and loops and things yep. that are involved in, in putting together algorithms. And they don't, they don't call them that in the game, but that's the skill that they eventually put together in more advanced uh, versions of the game. So he's already, already learning some programming skills. You know, Sandy taught computer stuff to the grade school at North American Martyrs for several years. Uh, she she didn't teach typing. They would she got donated computers or keyboards or anything else, and she had third grade students and sixth grade students take them apart, see what's under it, see what under the key, and see what a circuit board looks like. So you take an old computer apart. So the kids would have some physical notion of what's going on, at least what's inside the box. And then separately, she taught them uh, uh, flowchart programming so that they were, which is a, a pretty basic part of computing. And I thought that was a lot more useful. Then later on, uh, I, I think after her day, they were they were having a class that was mostly um, key entry, which is okay, except that I don't think you get a lot of understanding from that. But if if they can do stacks and queues, they can do the universal program solver, universal solver. Uh, and uh, you can go back to uh, Bellman's principle and really profound thinking. So if you can stop and say, okay, we're going to talk about Bellman's principle of optimality today, then you can you can have them skip third grade. <laughs> I look forward to that. Well, don't let them skip third grade, but... Uh, at least if they're going to skip third grade, farm them out doing something. But you don't want them graduating too too young. Uh, as you know, in the, in the family tree stuff we've been talking about, Percy graduated from high school at age 15 and college at age 19, and he said it was the biggest mistake that was ever made. Well, try not try not to repeat those mistakes. Yeah, when you were at Rice, did you have any 13-year-old graduate students running around or anything like that? I didn't see any. Most of them were overage because uh, they were on the five- or six-year program. Yeah, I don't I don't recall any really young people at Iowa State. We had a lot of uh, veterans coming through, so we had a lot of people age 30 in our classes. I don't remember any 13-year-olds. Okay, well, let's wrap it up for today. Thanks for the uh, illuminating recount of your experiences. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah, well, thank you very much. This has been fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Barry.FYI. If you'd like to share your stories, please give us a call. We'd love to have your life lessons and your participation. Memories sweeten through the ages just like wine. Quiet thoughts come floating down and settle softly.